everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only podcast where you set up a poll to determine how many games you played last year, and you can't pick between the 0 to 49 bin and the 49 to 100 bin. I'm your host tonight, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my millennial co-host, Mr. Jacob Klopfenstein. Jake, how you doing? Always wonderful, my friend. Thank you for asking. How are you? Today's a special <laughs> day for you because it is actually your birthday today, Mark. So I'd like to say it is a happy birthday, birthday on yeah. the air. I've said it in all streams of media now. I, I DM'd <laughs> you with it, said it to you before, and now you're getting it live on the thing. So happy birthday, my friend. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's nothing I'd rather do than spend my birthday with you recording another Gaming Moguls episode. Nah, you're lying to the listeners, Mark. You're lying. There's plenty of things you'd rather do, but... <laughs> That being said, sure. it will be a fun episode. We got a lot of fun stuff to talk about. And Jake, how, how, how many games were played last year? Me? 400 and something. I just goofed. I don't know. It was one of those days. I, I, I'm i pretty under the weather right now. I know I can, probably can't tell by my voice, but I had a pretty bad head cold yesterday. And I slept for, I think, 16 hours all of yesterday. And wow. I'm just still a little bit under the weather and I'm just dumb. You know, I, I just having a dumb day. Please excuse my uh, ramblings here, because I think I'm going to sound a little more dumb than I normally do. Man, you bailed out super early on Wednesday night from our game night. You took off at like 10 o'clock. Um, I think it was nine something because I was asleep at 10 and I woke up at eight. I had a meeting at 10. I didn't shake anybody's hands. No worries. So I did that. And then I came back and I slept pretty much from then until 7 p.m. And then my wife came home. We had some dinner and then I went back to bed at 10 and I slept until this morning. So I have been feeling like crap. But I think I'm on the backside of it. So excellent. Didn't get coronavirus. Fortunately, Jake, before you started feeling under the weather, we got a chance to do something we've been promising for several episodes right now. And we would like to make a very, very, very big announcement. That's a drum roll. (laughs) Nice. Thank you. That was great. We've picked our contest winner. We have a name for our gaming moguls mascot. Finally, Jake. You want to do the honors? I do. What's our new name? Our name for our uh, mascot here is Archibald Theodore Nexus. For everybody that just went, what? <laughs> yeah. Let me explain it for everybody. It sounds done. Um, so a very upscale man like Archibald would probably go by only his first two letters, like F. Scott Fitzgerald or something along those lines. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so he's going to go by A.T. Nexus. And if you keep on saying that in your head for a little bit, like A.T. Nexus, A.T. Nexus, A.T. Nexus, A.T. XX. Wow. How creative ah, is that? Fortunately, I think our friend John Radigan, who submitted that one, obviously knew our penchant for puns, and yeah. uh, that was almost unavoidable for me. As soon as I saw it come in, I went, oh, that's it. We got to play it out, but that's going to be it. Agreed. We, we, we filtered them after uh, we had gotten all the responses, but I was an idiot and clicked through some of the responses before we actually pulled all the data and made it into a spreadsheet so I could hide who submitted it. And for a long time, I was like, should we give it to our friend? Yes, because it's clearly the best one. So we're going to call him our little mogul Archie or something along those lines. But A.T. Nexus will be kind of what he's known as as well. Congrats, John. Um, You get your copy of Modern Art. We already ordered it and should be here in a couple of weeks. So we will give that to you sometime in person. Yep. I placed an order on filibertnet.com, the only place I know of where I can get the French version of the oink copy of Modern Art and it's on its way. So as soon as it shows up, we'll uh, find a way to game and see if we can't break it in in person. So congrats, John. Let's talk about some games we played this week. Should we, Mark? Indeed. I can't wait. All right. So starting off with our uh, mascot's namesake, we got to play some 
18xx games this past week. I actually played three of them, but one of them was with you. It was really cool. Thursday night of this past week, we got together with a friend of the podcast who is not from the Twin Cities, but was in town for work and thought we should play some games together. So we played 1882 by Mark Voyer, and we played this with Dan Dom, friend of the show. 1882 is set in Mark. Do you know the name of the region? Do you want to try oh, to pronounce it? Oh, I'm going to massacre this. It's a region in Canada. Assiniboine, 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 somewhere yeah. in Canada. I don't that know. Region. <laughs> it's up in like Saskatchewan. And uh, yes. so it's, it's a region that I do not know much about geographically, but it was a very interesting train game. It's 1830 derived, a lot of the same rules from 1830. So it's got full cap. And the one thing that's kind of interesting about it is all of the privates do something that's pretty to really interesting. Yeah, those are some of the most fun privates I've seen in an 18xx in actually kind of a long time. Agreed. And all the track is on the map seems very well thought out. So for example, there's only like 457, those are the straight city tiles in the game. So you can't ever have really five companies float unless they're the OO companies at the same time. What'd you think of it, Mark? Well, uh, so we ended up playing it twice in the same evening. I had really, I, I think you, it would be hard pressed to say I, that I could have more mixed results than I had in those two games. Yes. The first game, I assumed incorrectly, like I heard, hey, it's kind of tight. This game usually ends in bankruptcy, but it's an 1830 derivative. So I went into it with the very 1830, 1889 kind of mindset. Whereas if you win a couple of mid-sized privates or the you know mid-sized and the larger private at 105% of the asking price, you're probably going to win. I went bankrupt really quickly. <laughs> that was yeah, not the probably going to win approach to things because I didn't have enough money to do anything after that for really the rest of the game. Yeah, it was very tight. But then the second game, um, you went bankrupt in the first one. We ran it back and you actually ended up winning, which was amazing. So clearly you showed that you do have some chops in these games, which is very interesting. This is probably going to happen like literally one out of a hundred times. But one of my favorite lines from the movie Miracle, that one about the uh, miracle on ice, the 1980 hockey win, where they say, boy, if you score on the Russian goalie, keep the puck. Yeah. Scott Peterson was in this game. I'm keeping the puck. You're keeping the puck? Gotcha. Well... I, I don't know if beating Scott at games is really something that's keeping the puckish. Man's a publisher. He's he beating me up so bad in so many other games that I'm keeping the puck. I'm considering a win. Good for you. So I thought it was delightful. I really enjoyed this game quite a bit. Like you, like we talked about before, I thought the privates were really, really interesting. Like some of the powers in the privates, one of them is a teleporter private. Um, if there's a teleporter private in the J in a game, Jake hint, I'm going for it. I love teleporter privates. Well, it was different than the teleporter private in 1830. It actually, for one, this game, actually, you can make some decent amount of money in it. There's some big runs in it. And on top of that, too, teleports you to a region that's pretty good, but also kind of bad, depending on whether or not you're going to build it at that point in time and whether or not all of the track has been wiped out. There's a region of the board that completely wipes out depending on what phase of the game you're in randomly determined and it's just really neat i think it's really cool i i like 1882 a lot i hope um a bigger publisher pick, picks it up because i would like to play this game a whole bunch more so what jake's referring to is much like the volcano event in 1849 this one has a, a an event that wipes out all the track in the upper left corner which is actually one of the higher scoring regions of the board and it can happen anywhere between like phase two and phase six i think or something phase yeah, three and phase six I, I think it's three and five or maybe three and yeah. six yeah. And if you time that baby correctly and jump in, you teleport over there after the wipeouts happen and you reconstruct, you can kind of be first in and lay the track up in that really rich part of the thing. And I thought that was a really interesting decision. 
Agreed. And also you get money for laying track in the region. So I thought that was neat as oh, well. True. Yeah. And um, another interesting private that we were playing around with is one that you actually get a dividend anytime somebody pays river crossing costs and which there's like a lot of river crossing costs, right? It's kind of the wilderness in Canada. So there's lots of rivers. And when you cross the river and pay that cost, if you own that private, you get a dividend every time that happens. So yeah, I think you can make money on that as long as you're a little careful to not overpay on it. Yeah, it was just completely different to play a game that felt so similar to 1830 style games, but was completely different. Mm, yeah, it felt really different. Completely agree. And I, I really I really thought it was good, man. I, I don't know that much to play take away from it as of now because I've only played it twice, besides the fact that I'm pretty warm on it. But this is just a game that I think could really fit a good niche in my collection. It's pretty minimal rules aside from the privates, which are wonky, but there's only five of them. So it's not that hard to keep track of five or six. On top of that as well, the game ends in bankruptcy a lot, apparently. So this is a game that you can run three or four times in an evening, maybe even more than that, and get a lot of plays in with newer players and kind of teach them how to play the game. But also know that it's a weird game with a bunch of weird tile constrictions and weird track lay and all this stuff that could be really fun for the really experienced players. So I think it could fit in that two hour range, sub two hour 18xx game. Yeah, easily. I mean, we in four hours, we played it twice, including a rules teach and one game that went to bankruptcy somewhat early and another game that ran all the way to the bitter end of, of breaking the bank. And, you know, we got all that in in four hours. Yeah. And then we also chatted for a bit after that as well. So yeah, it might true. even be more like three and a half. And we play pretty quick, especially with 18xx games. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just really a fast game, which is a part of the, the, the niche of the 18xx world that I always need. Anyway, yeah, I would give that a strong thumbs up. Would really like to play that one again. And I think that's one that, man, I think that fits a unique hole in my collection, too. I think the shortest games I have would be either 49 or 89. And You'd be hard pressed to play 49 in under three hours. Maybe if you really pushed it. Nah, two and a half. I think I've done it in two and a half. But yeah, not not solidly under two, which I think not 90 minutes. <laughs> Agreed. So that is 1882 by Mark Voyer. I also got to play some more 18xx this past week. I played three games of 1832, which is a Bill Dixon 18xx game um, published by Deep Thought Games. I've been playing this one online a lot. And oh, my gosh, it's so cool, Mark. And the reason why I'm talking about it, you haven't played it, but I think it's going to be one that you really like. So one of the 18xx games that we're both very fond of is 1850 because it's set in the upper Midwest where we live, right? Mm -hmm. But also 1850 have some cool mechanisms in it. So for one, it has all of the IPO and company shares actually pay into the company. If the shares in the bank pool in the market, then it does not pay the company. So it kind of flips that 1830 truism on its head. But what 1832 also has on top of that is it has systems. And unlike the systems in 1828, I instantly understood how the systems in 1832 worked, which is where you just add together the share value and average them. That's the new share value. All your shares then become 5% shares and there's no like trade in, no option up. It's just now it's a 20 share company of the system. And it is a really good game. I'm going to try to track down a copy of it because I think it's going to be one that you and I love to play. So 1832 is really good as well. And I think you're going to play it sometime soon. Sounds great. Yeah, I don't know anything about it other than what you've told me. And, you know, if it plays out like 50, I'm in. 50 is fun. Agreed. And the other reason I have to bring it up is I have been doing very well at this game. I don't know what's going on, but in the three (laughs) games that I've played, I have won two of the games that went to completion. And then I did not lose the game where we called it early because I dumped a trainless company on Mr. Jeff in OR2. So that was always good for him. Agreed. He's got to learn somehow. 
So anywho, that is 1832. Why don't we talk about some of the games that you played this past weekend, bud? You know, let's keep on rolling with the train motif. What do you say? Let's do it. One that I've had on my want to playlist for a very long time, and I could have gotten a copy of this six months ago, Jake, but I added it on cheaply onto a Kickstarter with Tokyo Squeegee Market. And this is Tokyo Metro by Jordan Draper Games and Jordan Draper. I first saw this getting played in person at Moguls Con last fall and have just been really, really fascinated by it. Spoiler alert, we are both complete suckers for Japanese design, small box, anything. Just the graphic design and the presentation. I love it. And, you know, train game and Jordan Draper's take on an 18xx game. I'm in. I'm full in. It's a nice long wait till I actually got my copy. Finally showed up here about two weeks ago, along with Skiji Market. And I was amazed. I literally picked the rules up for this game in sub 10 minutes. It's a really easy game to understand. The idea is that you've got the Tokyo Metro subway system and you're trying to make money off of it. What's a little different is, though, that you invest in the train lines, which just perpetually run. Once you start the company, they just start running like a model train going around the tracks. And then you actually buy stations. You put the stations out there, and then depending on when a train runs through it, if you own shares in it, it goes up a lot in the stock market. If you don't own shares, it pays you a little dividend and goes down a little. There's also this little funny mechanism where you have a meeple on the board and walks around, and you have to physically be at the location in order to buy that station. So you can either walk there, or you can hop the train and go there, which is just fun by itself. Lastly, unlike 18xx and many other hard economic games, this is a really streamlined worker placement game where you've got a bunch of discs and you kind of do it Feast for Odin style till you're out of discs. Some of the cards actually take multiple workers, Feast for Odin style. And you have the option of buying those cards to use for yourself and having your own private actions later on. All in all, we played it in sub two hours, including Teach for sure. This has vaulted its way up to one of my favorite games. It's kind of the game I was hoping City of Big Shoulders would be. Interesting. So I guess I'm wondering, we didn't talk much about the game after we left because as we had aforementioned, I went to bed pretty quickly after game night and this was the last game I played. I am surprised you like this game that much. You think it's a top 20 game for you? It certainly has the shiny wrapped around it at the moment. Agreed. And, and no one's going to fault you for that. I mean, and also the shiny on this game is amazing. The presentation is beautiful. It's one of the best looking games I know of. Yeah. You know, am I probably giving it more credit because it's new and it's shiny? Sure. But, you know, I played it twice and I found it delightful both times. And I'm kind of, you know, scratching my head going, oh, there's some interesting things you can do here. There's, the, oh, oh, that's really clever. And I, I have yet to explore the depths of that. So got it. I think that also has some interest to me. I'm guessing by your response that you're a little more moderate in your opinion of these things. Yes. As of now, it confirmed that I did not need a copy. My first play confirmed that I do not need to own this game. And that may just be for the fact that I don't want to have to use plexiglass with my game. You know, I I, I like the roll up mat in PAX Premier, but I do not like it in this game. For the listeners, it has like a, a woven textile mat that's printed on. I don't even know what, what material is it like a canvas cloth? Something along those lines? Uh, it's just, it's nylon. It's like a flag. Oh, it's like a flag. Got it. And so the, you can like iron it out, but we ended up putting under, uh, what's it called? The, the clear stuff. Plexiglass. Plexiglass. We put under plexiglass to play. I, I enjoyed the game. Don't get me wrong, but it certainly didn't feel like either a financial based game or like a worker placement game to me. I thought it was neat. And then also thematically, I don't really understand what we're doing in the game. <laughs> Like we we kind of own the metro lines, but the metro lines have already determined where they're going to go. But also we can invest in these stations, but the stations are like pretty cheap, but they're already also there because they will be ran to regardless of whether or not there is a, 
a train running on them. Like they, they exist, but they don't. It's very weird. I don't really understand what's going on like theme wise around this game, but I like the presentation. I ended up not doing that well at it. I don't know what caused me to not do well. Maybe, maybe me not liking the game or something, but yeah, it's just, I, I don't know. I it did, didn't feel like either a worker placement game or an 18xx game, financial game to me at all. Well, I'll give you that it didn't feel like an 18xx game, right? And like it because it's not right. It, it's clearly not. It has more in common with a cube rail game than it does with 18xx right. because sure. because the each share you buy dilutes the payout versus the opposite. Correct. And 18xx games with already prefixed on how much you're going to get of the payout. A few thoughts on your opinion for starters. Uh, you were also kind of crashing due to being sick at the time. True, so fair. possible that may have impacted your enjoyment of whatever the heck we were going to play that night. Mm-hmm. That's certainly a thing. The other comment I would make was that you, you commented that the stations are cheap and they're not. They're crazy expensive. I mean, there are cheap workarounds to get it. Like you can cleverly spend extra workers to buy speed tokens and then trade your speed tokens in on stations later on. But if you're just going to straight up pay for those things, money's tight in this game. And I haven't played it yet where I haven't been several loans deep by the end of the game that I couldn't pay back. So I think I strongly disagree with the notion that stations are cheap. They can be cheap. It depends on where you go, right? Like if you're going to one that only has a one circle station that's hit by a couple of trains, it can be as cheap as 100 yen or whatever, right? Sure. The odds of that paying out are also pretty small. One thing I should probably mention too is yeah, there are a few highly desirable spots on the on the worker placement board on there. For example, the ability to buy stations at a discount price is on there. One of the mechanisms in the game is you actually have to bid for turn order. And so well, that's great that that cheap spot's out there. Unless you also bid up money that goes to the bank and you lose, even if you don't win, you're probably not going to get a chance to take that cheap option. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, you're completely right. The, the spots are not balanced for a reason. You know, they're trying to make an incentive to make it so you go to certain places, right? And I kept on pointing this out at the end of the game, which I thought was funny. But there's like a handful of stations that like I'm assuming we'll never have anyone build at because they're like terminus stations for <laughs> one yeah. train line. And so it's funny that they even <laughs> exist on the board because it's like clearly no one's ever going to build there. They could just make them stops or something. But I don't know. Reading the commentary in Board Game Geek, Jordan Draper says exactly that. He even says he says, quote, it would not be a good play to build a station on the beginning or an end of a route. Right. And so I guess this kind of just goes to the point of this game. It is a bunch of mechanisms that I think are really done very well, but it also attempted maybe too faithfully so to adhere to the metro system of Tokyo, which was probably a design thing. And I should probably just give Jordan Draper the benefit of the doubt and read his little uh, design blog thing that he has up on BGG. Do all of these parts that are good on paper and work in other games work in this game? I certainly don't think it's a bad game as of now. Do I think there's better games than this? For sure. Will I always play this game? For sure. Yeah, it's 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 totally unassuming and it's fast and quick and fun. I just, I don't know. It just didn't really spark with me, if that makes sense. Well, I, I would certainly give it another shot when you play better and oh, agree. dig into it. And I'd love to more. do that. I think that'd be fun. I mean, it's such a joy to interact with the beautiful artwork that he's done. I mean, it's 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 a great looking game. I can't understate that. I'll also side with you on the fact that uh, Jordan Draper is somewhat controversial with his games. I mean, he has people that absolutely love everything he does, and there are people that don't. You know, I mean, he is he is polarizing to a certain extent. Agreed. That's Tokyo Metro, designed by Jordan Draper, published by Jordan Draper Games. I also had the chance to try one of the other Jordan Draper games that I had. Along with Tokyo Metro, ordered Tokyo Jido and Baiki. Jido and Baki? Jido and Baiki. Great. Second time we're slaughtering a word in this, in this <laughs> podcast, Jake. Oh, boy. So why did I buy this? This is a game about Japanese pop machines and the little pieces in there. 
are a plastic pop machine and a bunch of little pop bottles and little pop crates and some cards and a whole bunch of stuff. I would actually consider this game an oink construction set. Right. But before we talk about that, we should filter for the people who are not from Minnesota. Where we live, we call soda like Coca-Cola pop. And we're going to keep on doing that from now on. Because <laughs> that's the correct way that's of saying it. That's the correct way of saying it. All right, now carry on. So is this like an oink game <laughs> construction set, you said? <laughs> Indeed. We're, we're basically what he did is he created a bunch of interesting pieces. And if you've ever been to Tokyo and Japan, the pop machines there are flipping amazing. I mean, you can get there's like hot machines where you can get like 19 different kinds of coffee hot in a can. Yeah, I saw a video where some guy was making meals out of just stuff he gets from the little the convenience little stand things, the, the, the pop machine oh, yeah. things. And because oh, they get like amazing. rice and they get natto and they get a whole bunch of weird stuff from it. They have monthly flavors of Coke. Like we were there during the cherry blossom season and they were serving up peach diet Coke. Hmm. Peach diet Coke is really good, Jake. <laughs> I, <would imagine. laughs> I wish they had that here. That was delightful. This is a whole game about that. And what he did is he created these pieces and then he gave these pieces out to his friends and other designers and a bunch of people and said, hey, make a game out of this. Whatever you want. Do whatever you want. So this all got bundled into one box with like a dozen 15 something like that mini games everything from little flicking dexterity games to pure abstract games to bidding games and really interesting idea i mean you could certainly just take this in exchange for a whole game box and just play all the different stuff that's in this box and kind of a fun concept so you played two of the 15 correct i've now played three of the 15 one of the game was a pure race game it was called creamed corn where one person is racing to stack those little tiny 500 yen coins end to end and the, everybody else at the table is trying to make sets of pop bottles in their case that don't share a color or a shape before the person like completes their row of 500 yen coins. It's literally that simple. But like race games, they're fun to do once or twice. Got it. Second one we played was called Gen Matcha, which was a bidding game about baking basically tea brews where you have to um, you bid for different cases of pop bottles and then you use those pop bottles to fulfill rows and columns in this tea brewing table and you get the money at the end of the column also pretty fun and the third one we played was uh lemon squeeze something like that it was a pure dexterity flicking game where it literally it literally was crokinole but with pop bottles oh that's hilarious so also pretty amusing so i guess this maybe will kind of shine a light onto my feelings with tokyo metro it seems like jordan draper really cares about material and like product design and like how the games really look and i'm not saying that this is how it is but my perception is that the game design kind of fits the game pieces and not the other way around and i don't yeah, know if that's yeah, true yeah and i i well I, for sure this one because the games were designed after the pieces right and and i don't know if a that's true for all of his games or b that's even a truth for any of his games you know and c i don't even know if that's a bad thing i don't really know how the game design process but to me my perception is that's less good than somebody who has this big game idea than then fits the pieces to it and the theme and i don't know if that's right or wrong but that perception of his game certainly hurts me and and, and kind of my thoughts on him from reading his design blog tokyo metro started life as a pickup and delivery game he started with the tokyo subway map and went wow wouldn't this be cool and then put a pickup deliver game on it, which apparently sucked bad. 
and then flipped it around and made it into an economic game. So, I, I mean, I think even with Tokyo Metro, you'd be hard pressed to argue that it didn't start with, hey, here's an existing thing. Let's make a game around it. Right. But I guess the question is, like, would he have changed the Tokyo Metro game and gotten rid of certain stations if it would have made the game better? Oh, he definitely did. So if he yeah. did, then, the, then, the, oh, yeah, then clearly there is some changes that he's willing to make. And it's where's that balance? You know, because I mean, I know people draw inspiration on, from everything on everything. Right. And so it's just whether or not I perceive that as a bad thing. And to me, Tokyo Jinobaki is like exactly the example of things I don't want made in games. You know, just like, oh, look at these cool little trinkets. Then we're going to assign game rules to it. That's that's not what I'm into the game hobby for. The reason I picked this up was that one of the things to it is it is a built in expansion for Tokyo Metro where you can build like pop machines at each station and try to market pop to the trains as they go by. Yeah. So maybe that makes more thematic sense. We're actually setting up like convenience stations or something along those lines. We're setting up these little uh, Jidon Bakis, Jido Han Bakis, Baikais. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> gotcha. But. Yeah, I, I would say the games I played, there wasn't one of them that I sat back and went, wow, that was an amazing game. I got to play this again, like I have with many oinks. So, you know, at, at the moment, oink is still my go to little box Japanese quick 15 minute experience. Gotcha. So what would you give that on the mogul scale, J- Tokyo Jidonbaki? <laughs> I keep on thinking if I say it fast enough, it'll. No one will hear how poorly I'm slaughtering the pronunciation. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that one's almost impossible to categorize because some of the games clearly are 1As. Some of the games are 1Bs. I think some of the games are even like probably 2Bs. I mean, Elizabeth tried some solo game thing that she said was absolutely freaking impossible to win. She's like, I don't know how anybody would ever win this thing. (laughs) Gotcha. So I don't know. Taking it back full circle to Tokyo Metro, we never actually talked about. We may dispute on this one. I'm giving it a 3D because I think there is a lot of decisions and interesting kind of little tricks and so forth you can do with this one. What would you give it, Jake? I would say it's a solid 3C, but I haven't played it as much as you. I definitely owe it a couple more plays before I really make up my mind on both the weight and what I think about the game. Fair enough. Jake, what else did you get a chance to play? Got a bunch of fun stuff to the table this past weekend. We had a weekend up at the cabin, and so we had a bunch of willing people to play a whole bunch of games with. So um, I got to play one of our beloved games, Yokohama, keeping up with the Japanese theme. Yokohama is designed by Hisashi Hayashi and published locally by TMG Games and over in Japan by Okazu Brand. Yokohama, one of Mark and my favorite games, I finally bucked up and bought the Deluxified Edition, which is a complete waste because I've nearly Deluxified my entire game. But it's one of my favorite games, one of my favorite Euro games for sure, and I thought it was worth it to upgrade it. And so upgraded it, got it to the table, still love it, still such an amazing game. So here's what I want to do, Jake. You plainly love the wood bits inside there most, and I plainly love the gold foil on the outside of the box. So one of these times, I'm just going to swap your box and see if you notice. <laughs> that would probably be Because I want your box. That's fine. You we can do. have the inside. I want the box. We can swap boxes. We can figure that out. That seems like something <laughs> we can totally do. Because the Deluxified version has this cool foily stuff on oh, the it outside. it certainly does and says oh, Deluxe oh, on it. Oh, oh. Moving forward on the kind of midweight Euros we got to play this weekend, I also got to play Concordia, designed by... Mac Gertz, and published by P.D. Verlag. Concordia, we've talked about it a whole bunch on the podcast, but a quick two-minute synopsis of it is you are playing different cards to do different actions in this medieval, not medieval, Roman time, antiquity time, usually Mediterranean world, trying to trade different resources for other resources to get the most points. Um, Each card that you have scores a different way, one of, I think, six or seven options. And man, oh man, this is one of my favorite light to midweight euro games to teach people because it punches above its weight um, the rules in it are as simple as explaining seven cards that you start your hand, your game with and then explaining each one of the seven scoring abilities for that and then wham you're going you're playing the game 
And it's just so fun because the first, let's say, six or seven go rounds while everybody does one of the actions and does all the actions take a little while. Then from that point on, the game just hits a turbocharger and the turns like literally take 10 seconds between your turn and your person to your left turn. It's just so fast and so amazing. And everything you're doing in the game is really fun and you feel like you're just the best and the smartest. And then you check scores at the end and it turns out you're not the best or the smartest, but it was still a fun experience to play. Um, I bought a whole bunch of maps to this game and I finally been working my way through them. And it's just, it's an amazing game. I love Concordia. So what are you finding are your favorite maps out of that whole collection, Jake? It's really hard because they use the like ancient like Latin spelling of things where like the V's are U's. (laughs) And so it's hard to know. And I haven't played all of them. I've played France, which is Gaul in this game. I played, Mm -hmm. um, I've played the Mare Nostrum, which is like the big Mediterranean one. I've played that one a whole bunch, but I only play that at higher player counts. I like all of them. They all kind of do that thing where they just add a really small, subtle rule difference that can or can't be removed in the game. And I think they're pretty cool. Like I know in the Gaul one, you can start your boats in different spots instead of just the spots that you can start them in in like the base area. So that one's pretty cool. But they're ultimately not that different. It's just kind of where certain choke points exist and where your colonists can move and kind of be left to their own devices. You know? Yeah, I think uh, the only one I've ever played still is the base game with like the salt expansion or something like that. I don't I haven't played any of the other maps. Well, Concordia has definitely suffered in our game group because it's one of those games that plays at five pretty well. And so I played at five pretty much exclusively. And that's that's this game is too good to be relegated to the five player Euro game. It's so good. It's pretty tight. It's fun. It's consistent. It's quick. It's it's everything I think you want out of this style of game. And I need to make sure that I play it more with three and four and two versus just playing it at five. You know, the challenge is, I think, though, once once you hit that three and four player spot, now suddenly the gates are open to everything. Right. Well, and now suddenly and suddenly Concordia's like competing against a whole bunch of other games. And that's the challenge. It's like, well, we can play this game that we kind of have played a lot or, ooh, there's this new shiny right over here. So that's actually 100% the reason I bought all these expansion maps. I bought two more recently, just like I'm going to financially guilt myself and my group into playing Concordia bunch because I went and bought more expansion maps that I clearly didn't need. But it means that we'll get Concordia designed by Matt Gertz played more often. So I think it's a good decision, Mark. I think you're going to like it again because you've only played this game like two or three times, right? Yeah, I got to be honest with you. This is the best game that I don't want to play. Really? I freaking love this game. I don't know why people don't want to play it. I've enjoyed it every time. And it's funny, too. I don't I have no basis of this. Like I have played it a few times. I enjoyed every time I want to. And I'm never excited to pull it out and play it. I don't know why. Um, There is something to be said of how abysmal the presentation is this game. It's not ugly by any means, but it's just very drab. You know, you're never going to see this game if you're a layperson at a convention and say, oh my God, what's that? That looks so cool. I want to play it. And you're staring at the board a lot and these ugly little cards that are ugly. It's just, it's not an enjoyable experience for the eyes. Yeah. And I don't even know if it's that. I don't, like I said, I don't have a good reason for this one. It's just that it's not one that I get, ex- like if, if we're all playing that, I'm totally fine to play it, but I'm never just like, oh man, I'm dying to play Concordia. Gotcha. We have to fix it. So I think it's great. I think Concordia is great. And I think you just need to play at a lower player count. Maybe that'll shake it up because you've only played it at five and it does drag a little bit at five. It just doesn't drag as much as other five player. Euro games. You're absolutely not wrong about the fact that I think that it kind of I, I we hit it a little hard on those nights. We had five about a year ago. It got played kind of a lot. And maybe there's a little there was a little burnout factor there, too. Or I don't know. Absolutely. Concordia PD Verlog redesigned by Matt Gertz. And I think we previously assigned that a 2C on the mogul scale. We did. So what did you get to play this weekend, Mark? 
Well, I ended up playing pretty much one game the entire day up at your cabin on Saturday and wasn't really planning on playing one game the entire day. But, you know, if I was going to pick one game to play the entire day, it would be a game that's kind of one of my favorites right now. This is a new game to me. This is Barrage by Tommaso Battista and Simone Luciani, published by Cranio Creations. And I have the retail version, not the Kickstarter. So I got the one where things were supposedly fixed. (laughs) after the apparently there was a lot of production issues with the kickstarter one i haven't seen any of those in person so i can't speak to that one and i am uh i'm perfectly satisfied with my retail version other than the fact that mm, my boards are kind of warping kind of a lot but aside from that it's winter in minnesota so what are you gonna do barrage is a game about hydroelectric power in the french alps during the 1930s it's what i would call hydropunk diesel punk Something like that. It's not steampunk. It's newer than steampunk. Hydroelectro steampunk. Hydro. I think it's diesel punk. Diesel punk, I think is the term. Sure. And what you're trying to do is there's there's water flowing down from the mountains, and you are trying to capture as much of that as you can to convert into power. And the amount of power you create is very directly related to how well you do in the game, because that allows you to get more income. It allows you to score more victory points. It allows you to fulfill more contracts, which gets you more benefits. And everything centers out of that. If you can't make power, you are absolutely standing flat, still dead for the entire game, and you're going to have a miserable time with it. Why is it a miserable time? Well, everything is super tight in this game. Water is super tight. Like, you can't just be satisfied with processing water once as it flows down the hill. You got to do everything in your power to process it two or three times as it flows down the mountain. Workers, to build your things, they're called mechs, actually, and you get them back. They're super tight, too. Like, if you put them to work building something, you don't see those things for a very long time and be able to use them again. And I'll explain that mechanism a bit more in a minute. Money, super tight. Everything about this is super tight. So it is a a very interactive, very vicious game that is um, kind of along the lines of a game like uh, Brass or something like that. And, man, I really like this game a lot. And four plays in. Um, I like it even more. I'm really starting to see some of the interesting plays that can be unlocked out of this one. Jake, I got a chance to play with you first thing Saturday morning. Then I got a chance to play it again right after that one. And I think we played a three-player game. Yes, we certainly played a three-player game. It was me and Steven. Fun game. It was the first time I'd actually kind of really taught it after having played before. And unfortunately, we got off to the bit of a wrong start. I had one rule, desperately bad. So we were underproducing everything that we thought we were producing. Which led to us not having enough resources, which made it already pretty tight game way tighter than it should have. Yeah, and I think this game still is very tight. I still don't know if this is ever going to be one of my favorite games in the world, but fixing that I think would certainly make the game a better game. Because it would have made at least the almost too much pressure back off, at least by like the second round, you could maybe do something productive. But yeah, I I thought it was interesting. It seems like this group of designers is doing an amazing thing often. I mean, I'm a big fan of Grand Austria Hotel and uh, Lorenzo El Magnifico, which I believe is accredited to Simone Luciani as well. They're doing really cool things. The one thing I don't like about this game is it's really tight in what you get to do. Like there's not that many options on like what you're really doing in the game. But there's like a million and a half special tiles that are coming through the game. And maybe just because we're bad at the game, we're not able to like utilize all of those. But there's like three of these new fancy building thing tiles coming out every time. There's all of these. uh, What do they call them? The the like bonuses whenever you produce the contracts. Oh, contracts. Which we actually did end up using a lot of those. There's like water correction spots it just seems like there's so many different things for you to do in the game it's really tight but also you're like competing for spots but not really because there's like a million and a half different spots to go and even at the end of the round 
it seems like maybe half of the spots are taken in any one round. Um, not that many other of the worker placement spots are actually taken, but it's it's a cool game. I like it a lot. I really need to try it again now knowing what I know because I think it's going to sweeten up a lot for me and I'm not going to have the same kind of taste in my mouth after the second play that I did after the first. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 got a lot in it. That's for sure. I got a chance to play it again Wednesday night against somebody that had played it a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And seeing somebody experienced play this one really gave me a lot of a, oh, 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 oh that's how you play. Oh, interesting kind of moments where I, I, that I didn't have before as I was trying to explore it. Your point about all these special tokens, that the special building ability things that come out. Yep. What I realized is I, I really saw him do a lot with synergy. Like one thing we didn't do is we did not draft the boards. Like you're, you're actually supposed to draft the boards Oh, and try to put together something with synergy and you try to get a board with a starting contract that's all sort of synergistic. And then he was drafting out those advanced technologies, I believe they're called. He was he was drafting those based on his faction power and then making sure to amplify that faction power. And man, did he run away from us fast one, because he was doing like literally twice as much stuff per round because he really worked the synergy. So he only cared about one out of maybe 10 out of those advanced technologies that came out. But, but that one that he really wanted was the perfect one to really nuke his strategy to 11. Gotcha. And and that's totally a thing to be said about this game is it seems like there's a lot of depth for you to do that in this game. And I clearly did oh, yeah. not do that oh, yeah. our first play. You know, I did fine. My <laughs> playment was OK. But I mean, there's at least like six or seven decisions I made that were just objectively wrong for that point in time in the game and ended up hurting me a lot. So, yeah, I, I'd like to play it again. I think it's definitely going to sweeten up with me as I play more. But I think my quote at the beginning of the game was, I think it was the second round, was, I feel like I'm covered in metal and everything I touch in this game shocks me. You know, like I'm just like touching everything and getting electrocuted because it was like literally like that. I felt like I was just like being shocked and tortured because everything I do was just bad, you know? That goes away very quickly once on the second play, for sure, because every time I've played this one, it's become it runs smoother and smoother and smoother to the point where you feel like you're running the game rather than the game running you. Gotcha. That feels really, you feel really smart when you start wiring those things together. And I'm all for that style of game. Those are my favorite styles of game. So I think it's just up to me to make sure I play it more often and try this game and see what it's all got to offer. Another thing I learned while playing it twice back to back and then playing it again a third time, every game that I was in, somebody was new to the game and didn't missed an important thing or didn't understand how the game was being played or missed some very crucial thing at the beginning. So like it was you and Steven on the first play. It was Eric in the second play who literally had zero victory points at the end of the fourth out of five eras because he missed a crucial thing at the beginning and got left in the dust and could not catch up and had a bad time. Wednesday night, John, who has played this before, got a like maybe a 30 second re-rules explanation on it. Likewise, too, he still liked the game and he, he likes the game a lot and he still had a fun had fun playing it. But he was driving from the back seat the entire he was playing from the bottom of the pile the entire rest of that game on Wednesday night. So I have learned that I think this game more than a lot of them, it's really important to play just a dummy round at the beginning where scores don't matter. We're going to reset after this. Let's just play a quick dummy round so you can refresh yourself with how the mechanism moves. And then let's play for real. I think that would have fixed the uh, play experience for literally all three plays that I had of that. Agreed. Yeah. And that's something that we've been advocating on the show for a while. And this is definitely the game that I think needs it the most. When we do finally get a chance to play this with Uncle Kirk or some of our other Euroling loving buddies, 
beat me over the head with my little custom wood uh, worker wheels if I forget to do that. I think it's even something, too. You don't even teach this game. All of a sudden, you just start moving and doing the things, each action, and just say, okay, once you choose it, I'm going to do each one of the actions real quick, and then we're going to play dummy round real quick, and I'll help keep on drilling that in. The teach will take a little while longer, but you're actually going to know the game and the implications of everything, and then we're going to finally move on and do the next round and reset, you know? Right. And the rules weight on this game is actually pretty low, given the strategic complexity of this game. See, it's I, I disagree. It's a pretty bugs. It's uh, Jake. I mean, it's no harder than any other Midway Euro worker placement game. The strategy. Now, the what to do is really difficult because, I mean, most of the mechanisms are literally just take this action and build a thing or take this action and get money or take this action and move your production wheel. But when to do those and how to do those is really hard. I disagree because there's a handful of costs that are multiplied that are hard to see immediately. And also how you're supposed to flow the things multiple times, how how it works. And the fact that you can use other people's stuff to move things. I would agree that most of the game exists in the midway euro area. But the movement of the water and a handful of the buildings that are more complicated make it up to a more higher level than that. Most of the things is just like you choose a spot and you pick a cost, but to actually run the water and the different options you have there and how the water actually moves, there's a decent amount of if thens on that little flow mm, chart. Like water flows downhill or through a pipe. I don't know how much more obvious it could well, where be. Where it stops, how much power you get per each stop, um, the fact that you could use other people's thingamajigs, the the power converters. Um, you can't use other people's power stations, but you can use other people's capacitors i can't remember the terms the, the, the disky things yeah i'll give you that is one gotcha where you do have to be very clear that you can only make power from either your dam or a neutral dam right and period i i, I think there's just a little bit more than than the average i'm still not going to call it a four by any by any means but it's definitely not like a soft three like if you were to compare this game to another three weight worker placement game i feel like a lot of those will be a little bit lighter than this but that's that's a, well, I think that's fair. And, yeah. and that's a downside of this of, of our little five point grading system. You know, there's not a lot of play within it. But if you listen to the podcast a lot, know that this is maybe a stronger three midway. Euro this, would, th- else. this would be a seven if we had a 10 point scale. Exactly. But we don't. And we're not going to do three point fives because that's silly. So we're just going to call it a three <laughs> D, do you think? Or do you think three E? We got to sometimes have a thumb wrestling meet about what is actually an E. This is probably an E. There's a lot of depth here. And by the same token, I mean, I think a game like Brass Birmingham should also be an E. Right. And this game, I think, has a lot of comparisons to Brass. And I'm pretty sure that we can keep on talking about Barrage more often because I think we're going to keep on playing it. Yep. This is one I'm very excited to play many more times. So Barrage by Tommaso Batista, Simone Luciana, published by Cranio Creations. Uh, It's a strong winner in my book. All right. So I have two more games that I played this past weekend, one of them being very fast. I played Heel Duck Mau Mau by Ravensburger, designed by Leo Colvini. Colovini, I think is actually how you say it. Oh my gosh, this game's so funny. This is one of those games where normally a big pet peeve of mine is whenever people say, I don't play that. I only play games that are fun or something like that, or I'm going to choose the more fun game. What's fun about that game? And I usually think that's a really silly way to talk about games because everybody finds game fun for different reasons, right? Usually what I think people think in that game is like everyone's going to be laughing. And whenever whenever the, the general public talks about games that are more fun and Hul Doc Mau Mau is certainly a game that had our gaming group laughing more than I've seen us laugh at pretty much any other game. I don't know why it may have been coupled with the fact that it was really late at night and we were trying to do really bad German accents while we were playing the game. Yeah, I absolutely hate this game with every fiber of my being, Jake, because you were sitting next to us while we were going Hul Doc Mau Mau precisely yes it was <laughs> I, just, I was trying to play biblios at the time and all i kept hearing is Hul Doc Mau Mau, the Mau, Mau. I was like shut up shut up 
So what you're doing in this game is you're different onions. <laughs> you're different like onions and you're playing the onions. But I think what Heeldock means in German is like go cry or cry baby or something along those lines. And sure, um, sure. the game actually comes with a tissue in it as the first player marker because it's going to make you cry so much. Um, and our good friend Dennis bought this off uh, Amazon.co.de, the German version. And it is so fun. It's kind of like, I think, another version of German Germany's like Uno, something along those lines. So what you're doing on your turn is you're going to play a card and you either play it to your stack, which is going to be points that are yours at the end. Or if it that card matches color or number of either the player to your left or your right, you have to give the card to them instead. If you can't play a card or you choose to, you can Mau Mau, I think is what they call it. And you flip your card over. <laughs> and depending on however many flipped over sad onion cards you have, that's whatever number of cards not going to score you at the end. So let's say I have like six fours at the very end, but I have four of the face down cards. That means none of my fours are ever going to score at the end of the game. So it means I missed out on whatever. Uh, come on, Jake, you can do math quick. 24 points from the six six different forts that I didn't score. It's super fun. It's really fun to do fancy German accents to it. I just an absolute hoot of a time playing this game. It's about as light as game gets. It's definitely a 1A, but keep an eye out if you're ever in Germany or looking for something that's really light to play with family because Hildok Maumau is very fun and you can cry. It was great. I, I joke, but I actually really want a copy of this. It was, that sounds great. It was fun. Speaking of German-based schadenfreude-centered games, we also got a chance to play another take on German Uno, Stickeln, which was our first game of the weekend, actually. Stickeln, which translates into prick, is a game where it's a trick-taking game that's absolutely upside down from every other trick-taking game you've ever played, in that every single card that's not led is trump. And the suit that is led doesn't have to be followed. And you're trying not to win cards in your pain suit that you revealed at the beginning because every card that you get in your pain suit is worth negative that many points. And every card you win is worth only one point. And you're trying to actually get points. And uh, this was a second playthrough with you. And we were playing at a kind of max player count. So peak craziness ensued. Ah, boy, that's such a fun game, Jake. Agreed. I always love playing it. It breaks my brain every single time I do it, though. Almost to a way that I just like feel like I'm dumb again. Yeah. I'm looking at all these cards. I'm like, oh, somebody laid blue. I have to follow blue. And it's like, oh, no, I don't. I can play whatever. But I think me and you certainly took the prick name of this game as uh, high as we could go because I was trying to be as mean as possible to every other player. You know, the second oh. that I knew they were going to take a trick, I was like, OK, here is the highest card I have in your pain suit <laughs> and try to force everybody else to just be <laughs> assholes to this guy. And it was hilarious. So fun. Yeah, there's a special joy being last in this game because you already know how it's going to go down and you have this choice when you're last that in most take tricking games, it's best to be first. You want to be first because you can control what's going down. It, you have no control when you go first in this game. So when you go last, you decide, am I going to take this one or am I going to stuff somebody with it? It's not always the most obvious decision on what you want to do because some you need to score points, right? You need to take tricks. But man, it feels so good to drop a 13 on somebody in their pain suit. Oh, it's so, the best. At the end of the day, them losing points is the same as you gaining points, right? So depends on how, it depends on whether or not they're in contention. Yeah, I completely agree. Every time one of us was last in the play order, where there'd kind of be a little nod and a wink to each other, just going, yeah, we're going to make this one hurt. Yeah, we always <laughs> did. It was great. Yeah, so that's Stitch Eln. Um, I got to pick up a copy of that. That is, that, is, that is a really fun game. And I think we scored this previously as a 1B. I think that's right. Um, a little bit more strategy than you'd think in it. But I also think it could be a 1A. I just think me and you are just yeah. so broken yeah. by um, trick-taking games that just completely <laughs> ruined us. <laughs> For sure. 
All right, so now on to my final game of the weekend. I got to try a new game that was new to both of us, but regrettably, you did not play it with us. This game has been on my, like, radar, I'm probably going to call it, like a game that I'd always wanted to play at conventions. It's always something I kind of keep an eye out for on deals. It's been on my wish list for forever, and I finally got to try it. This has to be the new hotness, right, Jake? Of course. I'm talking about Keyflower, a game that came out in 2012. You know me. I'm all about the hotness. (laughs) Um, the old hotness. The old hotness. So the key flower is designed by Sebastian Bleasdale and Richard Brees, and it's published by R&D Games. Keyflower is really weird. It came out, I believe, in 2012. I'm not going to BGG check it. I'm just going to trust that my brain's right. And it's one of those games that like has all the things from the other Euro games that you play, but it's like nothing like any other Euro game. There's these different workers that you have that are straight meeples, and you're bidding on these different tiles that exist that you're going to add to your little tableau. It's kind of like a city or like countryside manor kind of thing. But also you can take the actions on these little tiles that you're adding onto your things instead of taking a, a bid to actually bid for them. And then after that, we are going to determine who wins them, and then you're going to add them to your little tableau, which then anybody can play onto, not just your own. But whenever anybody plays either a bid or on a tile, that determines the color of workers that can be bid on by any player at that region. So if I know Mark has no red workers, but he looks like, depending on what he's going for, he's really going to care about this thing. I can bid with red workers knowing you have none, and that locks you out from being able to do that this round, which was wild fact of how interactive that was. Then there's also a like kind of phase where you get more boats and then you build all these things onto your little tableau and then you score at the end. It was wild. It was super unlike other games I've played, but I don't think I'll need to invent new rules or words, pardon me, to teach this game to any average Euro player because they've seen these mechanisms in all these other different games. It just was used in a completely novel way, at least to me. And I thought it was really good. This has been one of those games. I, I think a reoccurring theme for a while is that I have been somewhat down on Euro games, but this is like the complete opposite of that. This game has been such an earworm of mine and I can't just stop thinking about it. I don't know what it is about it, but it's just so weird and so new and seems innovative to me. So it's a game I really liked. I actually ended up buying myself a copy with some Amazon gift cards that I had. So yeah, you're confusing me these days, Jake. I got to be honest with you. Explain, explain more. Because literally there's been about half a dozen times over the past month that I've just gone, I'm done. I'm not teaching you any more games. I think you're going to like a game and you just kind of go, eh. Yeah. And then you, then you, you come back and it's a game I'm not part of. And you go, this game's great. I think I'm going to get a copy. And I'm just like, I, 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 I got nothing. I am Maybe just me. I am just as unaware <laughs> of what's going on in my life as you are. I, I don't really know. I, I, it's weird. It, it makes no sense. I'm not trying to say it's rational, but it's, it's weird. And I think I do think Keyflower is going to be one of the games that you're going to play and you're going to be like, oh, I kind of get why Jake was liking this. This is sure weird. It's it's revolutionary in the same way that like Agricola was revolutionary to us when we finally played. it. It's like we know all these mechanisms. We know exactly how it's going to be like. But something about how they're all put together is, ooh, oh, wow, that was really cool. Yeah, it stands the test of time because it's such a classic, perfect implementation of it that it's it's good just of its own merits. Yes, absolutely. So that's Keyflower. Um, I'm sure we'll play it more, but it's got to be a 3C. It's exactly kind of in the pocket for Midweight Euro, and it plays up to six. So, hey, that's something. Is that currently in print right now, Jake, or is it uh, have, hard to find? I have I, no idea. I bought it on an online retailer, no so I, maybe, I don't know. It was more expensive than more Euro games than I'm used to paying, but oh, well, I haven't bought games in a while. So that was me. Mark, bring us home. You have one more game on your list. Indeed. Speaking of big, heavy things, 
we were talking about big, heavy things, right? <laughs> I'm going to pretend we were. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> our final game of the weekend was one that uh, is heavy, both in terms of decisions and in terms of just sheer poundage. This is Container by Mercury Games, designed by Franz Benno DeLong, Thomas Ewart, and Kevin Nesbitt. This is a player-driven economy game where you're shipping containers from production facilities to your port and other people are moving those to the island and then you're auctioning those things off to try to get the best set of containers that you possibly can. And kind of a fun, this is my second play. We just talked about this, I think, last episode, which was my first play. And it was very fun to play it again a second time now that I actually understand how the economy works. Interesting play and for a couple of reasons. Number one is uh, the first player rule states Whoever's most recently piloted a container ship gets to go first. And, <laughs> you know, nobody at our group has done that. But we have one guy that really looks like he could have. So we all nominated him to go first and then decided we should maybe Chwazi. And Chwazi picked him. And he won. So something we don't know, Eric? I don't know. <laughs> he's clearly the most container, the most shipping, most shipping guy. Yeah. Lately, he's got a secret double life as a shipping container captain. The old Edmunds Fitzgerald. It was also interesting playing with a couple of people that were pure Euro players. That's always a weird kind of flip, right? Because this is not a Euro game, right? No, it's completely wrong. Standard efficiencies do not apply, and you can't just do that math on the, well, I'm going to buy for four and I'm going to sell for five. Well, no, (laughs) you're going to sell for as much lint as you can suck out of their pocket to the person that wants that color thing, no matter how much you paid for it. And our uh, Euro players at the table didn't really grab that super quickly. Right. And that's so hard about this game because it's such an amazing game. But it's like, should the merits of a game be based on how similar they are to other games? You know what I mean? Like, should shared Mm -hmm. knowledge pool be a a good thing of a game? Because I think that is an issue in the modern board game scene. If games are like other Euro games, people pick them up quickly, which means that they usually like them more. And we've totally been guilty of this in the past. Sure. You know, it's it's tough. It's tough to figure out. You also then run the risk of that being just sort of a derivative samey like the, eh, it's kind of the same as every other game. It's fine. But what's the one unique thing about this one? Whereas, ah, man, it feels the same in that it's an auction game, but this doesn't really feel like any other game that I own. Agreed. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Container. I'm just so happy you're getting it played so often. The most amazing thing that I heard about your guys' plays, you guys didn't overbid for each one of the containers, which is awesome. Because no, it no, seems I, like every single time I played this game, the newbie player has been paying like, eight to nine dollars per container well yeah for sure everybody was bidding pretty smartly um i ended up coming in second i believe with a much better score than i did last time and got beat by a guy that won zero auctions so maybe we were overbidding right because he was just shipping stuff and putting it up for bid and he ended up winning of course the margin of victory honestly was unpaid loans oh gotcha yeah you can't have unpaid loads mark what are you doing you're supposed to be cash rich at the end of the game i know well i had cash but uh yeah the uh the, the the vig was what took me down ultimately gotcha so anyway uh yeah i can't wait to play this game more especially now that enough people in our group know it that i think it could get, get played much quicker in fact our play that night uh, was sub 90 minutes for sure it is such an amazing game it's just it's it's amazing that you you're starting to see the beauty that is container because i thought it was a game that you would like a lot because it's a oh, little man. bit more I mean, opaque i mean uh, pardon me a little bit more translucent than other games of its ilk yeah but i love i love the estates i love mm-hmm. modern art i love you know i love kind of those other auction driven player <laughs> decision making games so i thought there was a very low chance that i wouldn't like this game agreed and it's got beautiful components to boot oh for sure i'm just i want to paint the ships now don't do it that's my next don't thing do it i want to I do I do want you to laser cut out some little baby ships and we can do like a to go container. 
That'd be really fun. Yeah, yeah. Because really, there's not much to that game. I think you could make a uh, you know little oink contain oink container size oh, box amazing. thing, just the laser cut pieces, and that's on my list of things to do. Wonderful. So we've talked for a long time in this episode, and we promised it'd be a, a quicker one, but I don't think we'll be able to hold up to the, that uh, <laughs> that thing. Who promised that? I knew what was on the list. There was no way oh, I was yeah. promising that. <laughs> so let's let's at least try to uh, tear into our main topic of the episode, which is the Gaming Mogul scale recap and the kind of different zone conversation. So two episodes ago, we talked about games that are both low on the Gaming Mogul's rules and strategy section. So the the mogul scale is a two-part scale where the number one through five indicates the amount of rules complexity with the letter A through E indicating the amount of strategy complexity. So we first did the yellow zone, which is the the low low, so like 1A to 2B kind of region. Then we finally did the high rules low strategy area, the like 5A and 5B area, kind of that region. And now, today, we are going to go to the lower right-hand section of this quadrant, which is the low rules overhead, high strategy region. Indeed. So these would be games that have mogul scale ratings of, oh, probably like 1D, 2E, 2D, somewhere in there, where the overriding rules is the, hey, that was really only about a five-minute teach, and oh, man, we're all scratching our heads a lot as we're playing it. It's that style of game. Let's talk about kind of the summary of what make these games these games. They're usually described as elegant. I've heard that rule described for a lot of these different games. And it's the elegance in their simplicity or like scarcity. The fact that they don't have a lot of rules in this game and you're just kind of in the game quickly. I think of games like desserts when I think of simplistic, elegant rules. On your turn, you place a ball and remove a ring. That's it. If you have three of this color, four of this color, or five of this color, or two of each color, you win, and the game's over. That's the whole game. There's a couple other little rules in there, too, but they have rule sets that can be explained in a very short amount of time, yet the game itself, you're just wrapping your brain around the implications of those few rules. I've seen a lot of these games become very popular, and you see them played very often, because they have a pretty low barrier of entry. You know, like learning the rules to chess, for example is not hard. You know, it's one of the most popular games in the world, if not the most popular game in the world. It takes $5 and going to Target and you can buy a chess set. There's entire chess clubs. There's world championships. There's entire stores with chess things in there. I mean, it's sort of, it's a phenomenon in of itself. And part of the reason I think is because of the fact that it's easy to learn a lifetime to master. In fact, that's probably the motto for this entire quadrant. Right. Because they can be just such a lifestyle for so long. I mean, there's people who play chess like exclusively, right? I mean, there, there, there's always the that Magnuson Carlson guy, Mag, Magnus Carlson, something like that, who's from Norway and he keeps on winning in chess every year. And it's always interesting hearing whatever new chess person won and hearing all the Cold War tales between the Russians and the, the, the Americans on chess. It's always interesting hearing all that stuff. So sure, that's not the world's strongest man winner. Like, oh, that's Magnus von Magnuson. Magnus von Magnuson. I'm pretty sure it's Magnus Carlson. <laughs> Um, but so anyway, why don't we talk about some of the well-known games in the sector and then bring it home with what we like about the sector and some of our favorite games. I think the poster child for this sector, again, you know, minutes to learn, lifetime to master, Go, a game which is solidly, what, 4,000 years old, something like that? I don't know. I've never played. It's a game that, (laughs) neither have I. Um, So (laughs) take our assumptions on this game with a big grain of salt. But I think even the uh, most jaded would agree that this is uh, very strategy heavy, given the amount of rules for it. And I think it's, man, it's a very elegant looking game for sure. Not that elegance is a look, but it's white and black 
beads on a grid. Right. <laughs> it's hard to get much simpler than that. So now moving with the grid theme, the other one that's a poster child for this this sector is chess. Everyone's played chess. There's chess clubs in every high school. I don't know what else to say about it. You know, it's chess. Just it's not that hard to learn how every piece moves. There's a handful of like weird things about like doing. I can't remember what it's called, but where you flip the thing with the thing um, where you can like castling the castling. And there's one other one you can do. Right. There's like two weird things on Ponsant or something like that. Is that it? That's it. Very good. I don't. I've never played chess whatsoever. So, I mean, I was never in the club or whatever. So don't. Again, I played a handful of times. The only reason I know this is because I was a board games merit badge counselor for the local Boy Scouts. And uh, they were running in parallel with that, the chess merit badge. So I sat through those sessions. I, I agreed to do this under one condition that I didn't have to teach chess. <laughs> <laughs> so they had somebody else who was into chess teaching that. So interesting. I learned a lot. I never knew about chess. Gotcha. But yeah, I mean, everything you can say about Go is the same thing to be said about chess, right? It's really, it's a his- history games. There's been libraries upon libraries filled with knowledge about just this game. And it really, the rules fade away. I mean, I, I'm sure that, there's probably some really long rules for chess written somewhere but that probably goes into like tournaments, right? Like once you you have X amount of time to complete your turn, certain amount of this, 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 you know, like all that stuff versus actually just the the gameplay rules are probably very small, right? Uh, yeah, for sure. So that is chess. Moving on the GIPF and it does not sound like I'm saying a real word there, but it is G.I.P. as in Peter F. as in Foxtrot games. Well, I think it's specifically not a real word. Yeah, right. That's why they named it that. <laughs> yeah. And all of the games are five letters and they seem like just uh, somebody reached into a handful of. Yeah. Reached into a handful of Scrabble tiles and plopped them on a table and said, hey, that's the name of our game. Right. And so these are two player. Usually I think they're all two player. At least the ones I've played. Abstract, no theme games that really are attempting to be like chess and go where they're very rules light. And they are trying to have the rules fade out of the way as early as possible, but deeply strategic games. Very low randomness other than like setup. Pretty design like. I mean, these things are really cool looking games. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they look really at home on somebody's coffee table, something along those lines. They're very artistic in their presentation. And I have formerly owned Zertz and Devon out of that category. I briefly owned Link was the one of these games I owned. And I think I get really weird in my board game collection of like owning sets of games. And whenever they have like numbered things, I want to get all of them. And so I was hoping I'd like these games a little bit more because I think it'd look really cool to have like all of them on the shelf. But that's just my weirdness. And I don't need to explain that to anybody else. That's just a me thing. So I think we hit on a kind of (laughs) other unifying trait of these games. And I think all these games kind of exemplify this. There's not like a varied amount of things you can do on your turn. And once you usually do one thing, that's your one turn. And then it becomes your other opponent's turn. The other thing being there's like no randomness to these games. They're usually all the same setup or there's like a random setup. And then you determine who's going first or something along those lines. Right. There's no like rolling a dice. Right. It's funny. There's nothing specifically about low rules, high strategy that means no randomness, but it's probably the high strategy that's causing that, right? Because random is sort of the enemy of strategy, wouldn't you say? Yeah, completely agree. I, I think that at least in our perception, it seems like anything with strategy at least muddies the amount of deterministic decisions you can make because there's always this little bit of randomness factored on every decision you make, right? So you'd never really know what's the right decision and it can really come down to a die roll. So I completely agree. There's nothing about this section that says there can't be any randomness, but at least maybe in the strategy standpoint, I think that's where it comes from. They have reduced randomness. I mean, some of the games that we've got in here maybe have a random setup just to give some variety in the game, but you're never rolling dice in any of these games or never rolling dice for anything of any critical importance. Agreed. 
So now that we've talked about some ones that I think most people will know, let's talk about the ones that specifically we like in the sector. I'll go first because I think I actually like the sector more than you, as long as we're willing to include games that are more like three rules wise versus a two or one. Because I think Correct. most, if not all, splatter games fit in the sector. And I think the best example that even is a two and probably a 2D would be Bus. Bus is a game that completely feels like it lives in this sector of low rules, yeah. high strategy, you know, not a lot of randomness. The randomness is the other players, and you, you just really have to like focus on figuring out this game fits there completely. I think that's perfectly coordinated for this sector. The one play I had a bus initially, spoiler, this isn't my favorite sector, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it, it kind of felt a little too much like that at first. But as I started figuring it out, I, I enjoyed it much more and uh, would definitely like to play bus more. Agreed. The other ones along this line, the other ones I think hit pretty strongly in the sector are Food Chain Magnet seems to hit here pretty well. Um, I played Cans this weekend. That seems to fit in the sector as well. And of course, the Great Zimbabwe has to fit in the sector as well. Sure. And I think some of the other splatters, like I think perhaps Indonesia and Antiquity are maybe just a little touch rules heavy to be actually in this one or rules confusing or. Yeah, I don't know. They, they got slightly too much. I mean, they're probably at least on the line here. They're close, but I don't think I'd ever get mad at somebody for saying that they exist here, but they don't seem yeah. as good as the other ones are because the other ones certainly are in this territory. I would push those two in the quadrant we're going to be talking about in the next episode, the the straight up heavy games. Agreed. Mark, you also have some games that you put in this section. I think anything with a player driven market is going to be in this sector because auctions at their very nature are pretty simple. You bid some amount of money and there's some there's some variability in how that's actually executed. Like, is it closed fish? Can you do multiple rounds? Once you're out, do you stay out? Does it go to the bank? Does it not go to the bank? But at the end of the day, you have to be able to make a pretty complex decision on what the value of the thing you're trying to get versus what other people are willing to commit in resources to getting that thing from you. And that level of decision making versus the amount of rules it takes to implement it, I think, pushes it pretty strongly into this sector. So I'm speaking of games like The Estates. The Estates is a very quick game to teach and is so brain burning. Container, which we just talked about a couple minutes ago, I think is absolutely in this sector. And finally, uh, games like Modern Art or Ra also, where it's the, the decisions that need to be made way outweigh the amount of rules that actually are required to implement the system. I also think that Age of Steam is in this as well, which is almost an auction game without being an auction game. Every single thing you're doing in that game is pretty simple. You're either getting money auctioning on turns, doing like a one worker placement spot, building some track, which is super easy to explain, and then delivering cubes, which is also easy to explain. And all those simple rules fit together to make the super complicated game. That's really hard to get good at. I think this brings out an interesting little, uh, some interesting points within our mogul scale graph, right? Because mm -hmm. I would put, I would put age of steam on kind of the axis line between this sector and the one above it, right? It's kind of a 2.53 E. Right. So it's kind of on that line where it's definitely on the heavy strategy and not super light on rules. But I think there's some kind of if you pro there's probably some really great games right along those axis lines where there are few more rules than not having too few rules. Right. I, it's just an interesting thing that I've been looking at with some of these games is it seems like we have a lot of these that are just sort of on the line between two different segments of our chart. Right. And I think that's the section that we like the most. We like games that punch above their weight, but not too much. 
And another one that I think exists on this line before we go into kind of what we like is Pax Mirror too. I think that's one totally fits. Exactly. Where it's, yep, exactly. it feels wrong to call it exactly in this realm, but totally on the line and debatedly in this realm absolutely makes sense. So as you were saying, yeah, I think things about this that we do really like is we really like games that punch above their weight because that's what we like in games, right? We like the rules to fade away and we like to be playing the other players. And I feel like these games take other players' considerations and what they're doing on their turn very much into the discussion on what you're supposed to do on your turn, right? I mean, you're not playing chess to get the best best points, right? You're playing chess to beat somebody, right? Yeah, exactly. And everything that your opponent's doing is going to directly impact what you're doing. And I think these games definitely have that. But sometimes they're a little too themeless and maybe a little too dry for us. Would you say that? There's a point. There's a dividing point at which I love. I love games that punch above their weight to a point. It hits a floor where at a certain point you start losing so many rules and so much theme that it becomes this pure abstract thing where, you know, with no randomness, no. And it's just it gets too thinky for me. Like I like a really thinky game as long as there's some theme and there's a bunch of stuff going on. But if it's literally just about making decisions between these 74 things and planning out four turns in advance, hard pass for me. I am not interested. Like my least favorite game on the planet is chess. I do not want to play chess, period. Probably don't want to play Go. I've never played it because I I look at it and I go, this is not a game I'm going to like. Right. And I used to own several Gip games and sold them. Mm, I like them, but for the same reason, they're not my style at all. So, yeah, it's um, there's a point at which I don't know. I sort of I look at these games a lot like creme brulee, right? I don't like creme brulee. Spoiler, because to me, it's just creamy, right? You just it's a it's a ball of cream and it's a ball of cream. That's not interesting to me. Like, I don't like mashed potatoes either. Right. And everybody that loves it. just Oh, there's so there's there's so many complex flavors and the richness of the creaminess. And you can taste notes of vanilla. And I need I need somebody to throw some berries on top and have a cookie crust underneath it. Right. (laughs) You need more things. You want contrast. You like the contrast. And I think that kind of makes sense in this game thing. You love the contrast of a lightweight Euro game with the decisions of a super heavyweight Euro game. Right. Yeah. Something along those lines or super heavyweight game. But when it comes down to. The rules that there's nothing for you to teach and you're just learning the strategy just feels because the whole thing is I'm never going to discover anything new in chess. Right. <laughs> there's been how many people have played it that are way smarter than me will always be smarter than me. Right. And you can maybe say this about Euro games or 18xx or whatever, but I at least feel like I'm learning and progressing in that system of games that hasn't already been figured out for me. You know, like maybe I should just read theory on like chess or something and then get better at chess. Right. But I, again, this is us firing from the hips. We're, we're not very into these games ex- explicitly. For me specifically, I agree with you. I could maybe play chess every once in a while, but I don't want that out of my game group. That is not no. something that, that I, I don't know if I'd be like, I think I'd just like raise an eyebrow if anybody ever brought chess to a board game group. Just like you're not technically wrong, but I would like to learn <laughs> Go at least once to at least see if I would like it or not and see if it's something that could be maybe at my my wheelhouse. But my assumption is that I'm somewhat like you where as the lower rules you go, there's certainly a floor for me. I do believe my floor is lower than yours, but mm-hmm. I, I I don't think I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to like these kind of games. I do actually kind of have a, uh, a, a hankering to play backgammon again, but, but backgammon has dice. So <laughs> out the door on that old random thing, but. Now that I know how that whole betting doubling thing works, that sounds way more interesting than I just thought it was. One final thought I've got on this sector is that I think the farther you push down towards the corner on this one, like the more you're getting towards like the one ease and stuff like that, I think the more it has to be a lifestyle game for you 
in order to develop any level of actual competence in this game. So like talking about chess and go and stuff like that, absolutely pointless for me to play this with anybody that's ever played it before, because it does absolutely reward lots and lots and lots of replay and study of theory and the science behind it and the theory behind it and learning moves and doing that. That's great. If it's your thing, it's not mine. So I think that the farther you get down in that corner, the more likely this is to be to be like your thing as a lifestyle. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. Or at least something that does not have as much cross-pollination with other games, which may be the same thing. That's exactly what you're saying. But like, I would imagine as you further go down, you just play Go. You don't play board games and you like to play Go. Like I play board games and I like to play 18xx. You know, I don't just play 18xx games. Yes. Right. But I think people play chess. They don't play board games that feature chess. <laughs> exactly. And and I think if you took some kind of chess-ish board games, I'm thinking like Onatama, and you brought it in front of a chess player, they'd go, oh, that's cute. Yeah, but it's not, it's not chess, <laughs> Maybe, right? And they'd humor you once with playing it, but then they'd never like all of a sudden go, oh, well, this is more interesting than chess. And maybe I'll try these other board game things. No, I think they'd humor you and go, that's cute. and <laughs> Do it once. Right. So absolutely. So that was our discussion on the games that punch above their rules. The simple rules slash hard decisions. Lower right corner of the mobile scale. Yeah, it was a great discussion, Jake. And uh, the one, I got to be honest with you, the one I'm really excited about is next times. Yeah. This is the heavy game, heavy rules, heavy strategy. These are the big, epic, night-long kind of monstrosities that we all fetishize, and I can't wait to talk about them. Will trains be featured? Will we talk about 18xx? Will we, Mark? We shall see. We might have to. We might have to. Might have to. All right. (laughs) Well, good night, everybody. All right. Hey, thanks for joining us. Uh, Mark and Jake, we're the Gaming Moguls. We'll see you next time. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Pop, 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 pop.